Well, growing up, I had a, I had a, I had a wonderful mother. I still have a wonderful mother, but I think about specifically as I was growing up. She's a fantastic lady, and it takes me all day, probably a couple of days, to list in detail all the ways that I think she was and still is a fantastic woman. But particularly where my mind went this week as I was just thinking about my mom, as I was thinking about how resourceful she was. You know, we grew up, and some of you heard my story, we grew up for the most for the most part, not having very much resource at all. We grew up pretty poor, um, kind of scraping uh, to, to get by. And something about having, not having a lot that makes you very resourceful. And some of you came up that way. And I observed my mother doing so much with, with so little. And she was so resourceful. And she was just a master of sort of managing our family's resource. Whether we had a lot, whether we had enough, or whether we had too little I would just watch her adjust and how she would sort of manage our family's resources. One of my greatest joys was to get to accompany my mother to the grocery store. It was just, I don't know why I enjoyed it so much, but it was just kind of like an outing. But it was interesting to watch my mother grocery shop. She never had a list. She never had a calculator. But we were not allowed to talk to my mother in the grocery store, not because she was ashamed of us, but because she was counting. She was counting the whole time. She was putting things in the cart, and you can just see her mouth moving. You wouldn't hear anything, but she was counting. And if you wanted to get yourself in some real trouble, you would mess up her count. <laughs> You'd mess up her count. And as I got a little older and I got a little bolder, one of the things we do to mess with my mom in the store is we put, like, big old, like, Christmas $30, $40 ham in the cart so that she's just startled when we get to the, uh, <laughs> to the checkout because the bill would be so high. But I didn't do that too often. That was one of the things that we did. We just wanted to have fun with her because she was just so on it, man. So uh, she knew exactly what we had. She knew exactly what we needed to spend. But that just didn't just quarantine itself to going to the grocery store. My mom was just a fantastic steward of our resources. And she always seemed to know exactly what we need. In other words, when things got tight, when there was no space or no resource for some of the extras... It seemed like my mom was really good at asking it and answering the question, okay, what, what do we need? What are the basics? What are the essentials, right? And I watched my mother and my father sort of live that way because dealing with lack forces you to, to, to learn quickly how to decipher what you need and what you don't need. I developed the skill of quickly assessing what I need, and it served me well in my adult life. It served me well to be able to quickly assess what my needs were. And this plays out naturally in terms of my natural resource, my emotional resource, my relational resource. And especially it helps me spiritually as I ask and hopefully faithfully answer the question, what do we need? And I think that question is most important as people of faith. It's most important as we try to assess and uncover What's the most important thing that we need? What's the most important thing that we need to focus on? What exactly is it that we, as fallen, broken humans, what do we need? And the short answer is that we need salvation. The short answer is that we need the only thing that will neutralize our greatest problem. And as we talked about last week, that is our sin problem. We need salvation. We need our sin to be dealt with. We need to be right with God and today I have the privilege of continuing a series that we're simply calling Back to the Basics. And if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you know that we begin this series, Back to the Basics. And it's a series through the book of Romans, the New Testament book of Romans. And basically, we've been saying that whether you are a brand new Christian, and some of you are, or whether you're a seasoned Christian, you've been hanging around church your whole life, periodically, we need to return to the basics. Periodically, we need to return to the foundational elements of our faith to remind ourselves what this stuff is all about, what we really need, and what we should be focusing on. In fact, the greatest danger for a person of faith is to be caught up in the things that don't matter that much and to neglect the essential things or the essential matters of our faith. And this series will help us do just that. Stay on track. And we'll all focus, no matter where you are on the Christian spectrum, we'll focus on the basics. We've said for weeks now that the mega theme or the big idea of this book of Romans is the righteousness of God. 
And each week I've read the quote quote by Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology. He defines God's righteousness as such. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So God's righteousness deals with the rightness of God or him being the standard or the authority on what's right. Unquestionably so. And to humbly embrace God's standard means to have a a successful Christian life. How many of you want a successful Christian life? How many of you want to thrive as people of faith? Or do you just kind of want to meander through this thing and just kind of barely get it right? We want to thrive, right? We want a success. We want functionality. We want to be right with God. And Paul tells us just that in this faithful book of Romans, how to be right. How to be right. I love being right. I love it. But I want to be right with God, man. I want to be right with myself. Especially want to be right with others. And Romans works us through that. We talked, you know, we worked through the first few chapters of this. We dealt with Paul establishing his authority, telling us he's not ashamed of the gospel. Last week, we talked about our problem, which is sin, and the solution, which is Jesus Christ, salvation, right? And this week, I, I just want to call this talk, a real simple talk, uh, I, want to, I want to talk about faith. Specifically calling this message, justified by faith. Justified by faith. Now, if you've been hanging around church for any length of time, you might come across some pretty big, confusing Christian words. And the danger when you come across big, confusing Christian words is to kind of go around them, right? We might even say, listen, let's simplify these things. We don't like Christianese. Let's avoid those big, long, complicated Christian words. And I generally agree with that approach. But there are some words, some concepts that are so central to our faith so central to who we are that there's a real danger in trying to go around them. It's a real danger in trying to dumb them down or to sort of stick them in a closet somewhere. And two such words is sanctification and justification. Sanctification and justification. We'll deal with sanctification later, but I want to define it today as to set it apart from justification. I'll start with justification. Justification basically happens the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. The moment you believe on the saving work of the cross, you are justified. In other words, we talked about last week how God just deposited his righteousness in our account. And when he looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, no longer sees our brokenness. He sees us as righteous, as clean, as pure before him. And that's what happens the moment you believe, the moment you accept Jesus Christ, we are justified, right? It happens one time, just one time. The difference with sanctification is sanctification is the process through which we become more and more like Jesus Christ. To put it plainly, if Jesus is that sort of dividing barrier right there and where we stand is the moment we, you know, accept that faith, we're still broken. We still have habits. We still have leanings. We still have tastes. We still have patterns of behavior that are negative. And the process of sanctification is that process where I, through just walking this thing out step by step, day by day, I get closer to Jesus and I get closer to him. I become more like him. The process of sanctification will happen for the rest of your natural life as you get closer and closer to Jesus. It's different from justification because justification happened once. We accept Jesus Christ. Righteousness is deposited in our account and we are free to serve him and live for him and our sins are forgiven. Those are the two differences, okay? So what we'll focus on this morning is justification. Specifically, justification by faith. Justification by faith. We'll look this morning at Romans chapter 4 as we just continue to jog through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, we'll start at verse 1. The rather lengthy patches today. I'll be doing a lot of reading and rereading. Don't check out on me this morning. We got some good stuff. Romans chapter 4, we'll start at verse 1. Before I begin this morning, let me pray. By the way, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles on the edges of your ropes. Um, you can feel free to take those Bibles if you don't have one at home. We'll also be projecting the words um, on the screens in front of you. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much how you make this truth come alive to us, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith that you have given us and that you will even pour out today. I thank you, Lord, that you have made us right with you, um, not by anything that we can do, but by just by your grace and your mercy. 
alone, Lord. I pray that these concepts would be made clear today. I pray, Lord, that those who have misunderstood what it takes to be in fellowship with you, to have their sins forgiveness given and to be right with you, those of us who have misunderstood that, Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity and understanding today. Father, I pray that those who are far from you today would be drawn close, and those that are close to you, Lord, will remain close to you, and that we'd understand who you are and what you require. Lord, make these words come alive. Put power on these words that you've given me to speak. God, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 4, and we're starting at verse 1. And Paul talks a lot in the book of Romans about faith, uh, and in this particular chapter, He's going to be talking about Abraham, right? We, we first meet Abraham in the book of Genesis. We often hear uh, Abraham is referred to as being the father of our faith, right? This guy that God made the promise to that he would be uh, the father of many nations and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. If you want to read that particular account, it's in Genesis chapters 15 through 17. But what we know about, um, uh, about Abraham, as we specifically read today, is that Abraham was made righteous... And right with God, receive salvation, to use a more modern word, as a result of his faith in God. And Paul just sort of outlines that for us today. And I hope that we can see ourselves in this picture of, that Paul paints of the faithful Abraham. And hopefully it will ask, answer some questions about what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be justified by faith, and what it means to walk rightly before the Lord. So we begin Romans chapter 1, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4. Verse 1, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. That's a very important word, boast. Tuck that one away. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their works, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Verse 7, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared forever. Now, this is the bless- now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith, but how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Verse 11, circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on the right relationship with God that comes from faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is why the scriptures, that's what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God, excuse me, in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things Out of nothing, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah, his wife's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises, and because of Abraham's faith, he counted him as righteous. 
And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25, he was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Now that was a lengthy passage, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of good stuff in there. And when you read a passage that long, and when it's chock full of so much good stuff, it gets real hard to pare it down to something that you could say within the confines of a respectable length for a Sunday morning service. And I would do my best, uh, I would do my best to accomplish that. But we see this passage, and basically Paul is just going on and on about the faith and the faithfulness of Abraham. He goes on and on about the goodness of God and the mercy and the salvation that God pours out on Abraham as a result of Abraham's belief and faith in the promise that God makes. And basically, God makes a promise to Abraham as we see if we look in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham, despite not having any children, particularly any male offspring, um, that he would be the father of many nations and both a natural sense as well as a spiritual sort of figurative sense and abraham just kind of thinking okay god i believe you but you know i don't have any kids right you know i think you know how this works but nevertheless abraham believes in god and god makes him righteous through that particular faith and that just sort of sets the stage for what we are going to talk about here today it sets the stage for our understanding of what it means to truly have faith in god And have that faith be the basis of our salvation or our justification, to use the word that we introduced this morning. And Abraham is a great picture of what it looks like to receive salvation or to be justified by God. Abraham received salvation and justification. And Paul seems to highlight three things here that are very foundational to our understanding of how this whole faith, salvation, and justification thing works. And I'm just going to jog through these three things as quickly as I can. Uh, through this lengthy passage. The first thing that Paul highlights is Abraham was justified by faith and not works. Uh, By faith and not works. I think works are very important, as I'll discuss a little bit later, but I think it's easy to misunderstand just how this salvation thing works. We live in a culture that really values achievement, that really values doing the work and earning something. And unfortunately, we bring that same broken understanding of what makes us significant, what makes us important, what makes us valuable. We drag that broken perspective into the kingdom of God. And despite what we read, despite what we see, despite what we hear Jesus say, we somehow read something in there that's not being said. We somehow read that you got to work for this. You got to strive for this. You got to stress for this. You got to push for this. You got to earn this. While Jesus over and over says, this is something that you cannot earn. Uh, that's not cheapen this thing by, 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 by reducing it to something that can be gained or something be earned by mere human effort. We see here that Abraham was justified by his faith and not works. And if we too wish to be justified, we too wish to come into the family of God to be saved, as it were. We too have to come in the same root of faith and not the root of works. Paul says in verse 2, if his good deeds, Abraham that is, had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, right? We like to boast, don't we? We like to brag. Even the most humble person likes to slip in a boastful remark here and there. And I think Jesus was basically saying, I'm going to set this thing up so that nobody can boast about anything. Nobody can boast about anything. But Paul says, if this is his good deeds, if his rightness had made him acceptable to God, he'd have cause to boast. And that's not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He continues, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Faith is the key here. So God counted Abraham as righteous because of Abraham's faith, his faith. And I'll be the first to admit that even as a seasoned Christian, somebody who's been hanging around church nearly my entire life, this whole idea of faith can be a difficult concept to grasp. 
It can be a difficult concept to grasp. Especially when we read in the scriptures and we see the same words used kind of in different, you know, in different ways. And it's hard to decipher well, what God means when he says faith and this, that, and the other. But faith can be a difficult concept to grasp. The word faith can be tricky because it can often present itself as yet another thing that we do. Listen, listen, have faith. Be faithful. Listen, believe. Why aren't you believing yet? I told you last week to have faith and you don't have any yet. Listen, it's another thing that we do when we misunderstand it. Listen, have faith, believe. Listen, don't doubt. And even my regular and faithful challenge to to lean into this thing, you hear me say that a lot, to, to lean into this thing, Sounds like yet another thing that we do. And so we mix all that in with faith and somehow faith gets misconstrued as something that we do. And all of a sudden it's a works thing. And then we come back and we read this and say it's not work. What exactly is this thing? What exactly is faith? And I've come to understand faith in a more accurate way. And here's how it works for me. I've come to understand that faith is not something that I do. Otherwise it would be another work. Another opportunity for me to boast. Another opportunity for me to set myself apart from those who don't believe and those who don't have faith. Uh, It's not something that I do. I think faith more accurately is synonymous with the word trust, particularly the noun. It's something you have. It's something you have. And trust is not really something you do, but it's something you have. And trust speaks to the degree to which somebody has been convinced of the trustworthiness of someone or something. And so often we, we, we talk about faith in terms of uh, uh, belief and trust even in terms of it being a verb, something you do. But I believe that faith, like trust and like belief, is something that you have. And oftentimes we you know, misuse the word trust. We say, hey, listen, just trust me. Or we say, listen, I'll trust you with this, but don't let me down. And what we're basically saying is, hey, we're going to take a gamble. We're going to take a risk. I'm out of options here. Uh, I'm going to take a gamble with this. There's a likelihood that you will, you know, mess me over on this deal, but I don't have very many options or I want to, you know, I want to take a chance here. And somehow that's what we mean when we, when we say trust, right? But what, to, to, to have trust means I am convinced that what you say is true. I am convinced that you are who you say you are, and I'm going to lean the weight of my life or lean the weight of my resource, whatever that might be, on that confidence that you will make good on what you said. And in that sense, faith is equal to trust, and trust is not something we particularly do or we can will ourselves to do. We can will ourselves to take a risk. We can will ourselves to take a gamble, especially if it's a calculated one. But you can't make yourself believe. You can't make yourself trust. You can't make yourself be convinced. Faith is a gift. It's something we have and not something we do. Particularly as it relates to the type of thing that Paul is describing here that unlocks justification, that unlocks salvation. Faith equals trust and that trust gives way to surrender. And that surrender gives way to rejecting anything that will result in any measure of self-salvation. Self-salvation. And we've learned to work and we've learned to earn. We've learned to misappropriate and misunderstand the text and therefore whatever we do, our good works, our good deeds, or this fake person that we try to be to to appear right in front of everybody else, that self-salvation is meaningless because it doesn't count to the person that matters the most. It doesn't count to God. The reality is if we truly trusted or we truly had the gift of faith that unlocks justification, unlocks salvation, then we would trust not in ourselves. We would see ourselves for who we really are. And that is absolutely powerless in dealing with our greatest issue and our deepest need. To truly trust in God is to truly see him for who he really is. And through seeing him for who he really is, we see ourselves for who we really are. And that is a person that's in bad, bad shape. I don't say that to discourage you. But I said last week, we can't appreciate salvation. We can't appreciate redemption 
unless we know to which degree that we're lost. Until we understand the depth of our depravity and the depth of our brokenness, we can't appreciate salvation. So this is not the end point. This is the beginning. Understanding who God is and understanding who we are. Trusting God alone is what faith means in this particular sense. Verse 3 says, For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Just uh, Abraham was justified, counted righteous. He was saved because of his faith, not because of his works. And to further drive this home, Paul mentions the difference between wages or your earnings and a gift. Many of us work a job or we've worked a job and we understand this whole notion, this whole exchange of, listen, I will give you my time and my, you know, my skill set. And you, at the end of a couple of weeks, hopefully, will pay me a paycheck. Right? So upon receiving your paycheck, you don't go into your boss's office and say, man, this is really generous, man. I really appreciate it. You didn't have to do this. In fact, you did have to do this. You better have this check because I put the time in. This is a wage. This is a negotiation. This is a deal that we've made. This is an understanding that we have. So it's with boldness that I go to my, whatever, my mailbox. So it's with boldness that I log on to my, you know, my checking account to see if that money is there. And it better be there because I work for that. Right? So Paul contrasts wages with a gift. And we all know people who, who respond poorly to receiving a gift. Or who respond with entitlement. Or uh, anything less than, you know, sheer gratefulness is something that riles up within us because we go, listen, dude, I didn't have to do this. You didn't have this coming. And the same thing is true as it relates to salvation. This isn't something that we're owed. In fact, you got a gift of entitlement toward the Lord. You better put that in check real quick because for him to give you what you owed. To give him what you got come for him to give you what you got coming. Listen, you want to avoid that like the plague, man. But instead of what we're owed, instead of what we're due, God deposits a gift into our account. And this gift is righteousness. This gift is justification. This gift is salvation that makes us right with him, covering our sins, giving us a fresh start. That's like a hallelujah moment right there. It's a gift. And this gift comes not by anything that we can do, at least we boast about it, but it comes as a result of our believing that God is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he will do. And when we do that, when we do that, just as Abraham received righteousness credited to his account, we receive that as well. So what did, what did Abraham believe? Abraham believed that despite... His physical situation, being in his late 70s or so, right? That God would make good on a promise to give him descendants as numerous as the stars. Right? So he, to believe God means that God not only has the, 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 the willingness, but he has the ability to do so. So, so, so Abraham's belief in that promise is, is more significant than him just feeling like, man, this is going to be really cool. I'm going to have a baby. The significance is that Abraham believed that God was who he said he was, and therefore he would do what he said he would do. And the implications of that is that Abraham's whole life was such that wasn't worth really being held on to because God's hands were more capable than his own. You see what I'm saying? So this is the importance of faith. This is why it's necessary for salvation. This is why it's necessary, otherwise it doesn't quite work. Abraham and we are are, and were saved uh, by faith, justified by faith, and not by works. Paul makes another distinction here in this faithful passage. And he asserts that Abraham was justified also by grace and not by the law. Justified by grace and not by the law. Grace simply defined is God's unmerited or undeserved, excuse me, undeserved favor. 
an undeserved blessing. And grace is often mis, mis, mistaken or exchanged for mercy. And mercy is, is similar, but mercy is kind of like, listen, you screwed up and you get an undeserved, like, second chance. I mean, you get an undeserved second chance. Mercy is a little, I'm sorry, a grace is a little bit different. Grace is an undeserved favor. It's, it's, it's somebody looking out for you. It's somebody gifting you with something. Somebody being generous to you in a way that you just, you didn't earn. You, you just don't have it coming. And it speaks to that whole notion of a gift being given versus wages. That Abraham was justified by grace and not by law or by keeping the law or in more modern terms by rule keeping. Being a good girl, being a good boy, right? That, that wasn't the thing that sealed the deal for Abraham. It won't seal the deal for us. We're justified by God's grace and not by keeping the law. I'm going to read, reread this real quick just so we have some context. And now, is the blessing only for the Jews or those who culturally keep the law? Or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles, those outside of the sort of Jewish faith, those who keep the law. Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith, but how did this happen? That's a good question. Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had already had faith already and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. Verse 12, and Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have, who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. I know this can seem a little cyclical here. Verse 13, clearly God's promise, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. And if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. So the burning question here as we read and we reread this passage is, was Abraham justified? Was he made righteous? Was he saved because he was circumcised? Because he obeyed the law? Because he kept the rules? Because he was a good boy? That's the burning question that Paul asks and he answers here. Now, for those of you who don't understand this whole concept of circumcision, um, I think we all sort of mechanically understand how that works. But if you look at Genesis chapter 17, you know, as God makes this promise to Abraham, he tells him that he's going to do this, right? He establishes this covenant with, or this agreement, this binding agreement between Abraham and himself that Abraham would just sort of walk faithfully and as a result he would receive this promise and that basically in Genesis chapter 17 God says listen Abraham I want you to um, to be circumcised and not just be circumcised but I want you to circumcise everybody in your house all your servants all these sort of things as just an exercise that you believe that this thing is going to go down and not only that I want all of your descendants to continue this practice and to continue it on and on and on and on. This is sort of the beginning of this whole understanding of Jewish circumcision. And for, for the most part, beginning of, you know, God giving his people ordinances and different practices to set them apart uh, from the people, the pagan world around them, right? So that's just a real simple discourse on uh, circumcision here, right? It's called the mark of the covenant, the mark of this agreement that God had made with Abraham. And Abraham willfully uh, agrees. Now, it's important to note that Abraham receives this promise in chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, but he wasn't circumcised until some 15 years later when he was 99 years old. So what Paul is saying here, listen, was Abraham justified um, uh, because he was circumcised? Of course not. He wasn't circumcised until some 15 years later. And why is that question necessary to be asked and answered? Because we just have this tendency, man. No matter how much we read this, we can go through a class on it, we can have it spelled out, you can highlight it and take notes until your fingers bleed. But somehow, some way, it's real easy for us to just fall back into this notion that what we're doing is, is gaining us the, the salvation. That our works and our righteousness and our uprightness 
And our togetherness is what makes us special. It is what makes us appealing to God. That God looked down from the heavens and he saw you and you had so much, you know, had so much swag and you were so together. that He said, you know what, I better snatch that one up before the devil gets her. Are you headed so together? Are you so smart? And you're such a person of faith that God says, you know what, it's because of your goodness and your deeds that I'm going to make you righteous. That's baloney. That's not how this thing works. So we talk, there's a whole lot of talk in Romans, and we'll really get into this in the coming chapters about the law and keeping the law. And listen, the law wasn't a bad thing. The law was what God gave his people because they were surrounded by paganness, surrounded by things that cut against the grain of God's will and his plan. And God desperately wanted his people to be on the right track. So he gave them ordinances. He gave them precepts. He gave them the law. One, to make them aware of their sinfulness, to make them aware of their brokenness, Make them aware of their tendency to go a whoring, as the scripture says, after things, uh, serving lesser things and serving lesser gods. But the problem with the law is that those who were keeping it or keeping portions of it, that was another thing to boast in. That was another thing that they counted themselves righteous. It was, a more, it was an exercise of self-salvation. Listen, I'm, I'm keeping the rules. And for us, you know, we're not particularly leaning into the, you know, the Old Testament law, but we have our own version of law keeping. We have our own methods of self-salvation. And it looks different depending on the person. And some of you just really, you've really learned that it's really, it gets you far in life to just kind of be a goody two-shoes. To just kind of obey the rules. And to stick to the script. And to do what you're told. Especially when others are looking. You just learn that. And if you're like me, you grew up in church, there was a lot of emphasis on being right and doing right and sounding right and not embarrassing your parents and not embarrassing your church and not embarrassing your pastor. And suddenly you, 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 you blend all that together and you hear that, I mean, that's what you think that's what God's saying to you. Be right, do better. Listen, get those bootstraps and pull yourself up. Don't you, don't you, step, out, don't you step out of bounds, don't you step out of line. And we internalize this, and all of a sudden, we, we feel like that's coming from the Lord. This is especially true for me because I am by nature, I'm just kind of, I'm a rules guy. I like rules. Just listen, tell me the rules, and I'll walk the line. Now, I want to make sure you have the authority to tell me the rules. But I want to be right. I want to do what's right. You want to frustrate me? You want to get on my, you know, you want to trigger my pet peeves? Is just be a chronic rule breaker. You know, people who park right in front of the grocery store, not because they're picking somebody up, but because they went in to do all of their grocery shopping and they just parked right there with their blinkers on like that means something. Or people who make illegal turns and just inconvenience all sorts of people just because they want to, because they feel like I'm just going to be here for a minute. I'm just going to do this. If you want to bug me, just keep breaking the rules. I had a buddy and I would travel with him on sales trip. And then one day I just told him, I said, man, you are a chronic rule breaker. Chronic rule breaker, man. Would you not break the rules when you're with me? I don't want to go to jail today. But I'm a rules guy. And that's good to point, but there's a measure, there's a line you can cross where that becomes unhealthy, especially as it relates to faith. Especially if you're the steward of a congregation and you're charged with rightly deriding the word of truth. Especially if you get the responsibility of interpreting the scripture for dozens of people that come here every day to figure out what God's heart is. Listen, I got to really check that instinct in me to be right and do right and keep the rules because I'll impose that on the scriptures and I'll impose that on you. And that's the last thing I want to do. Rule keepers. Thinking that our adherence to the rules, our adherence to being good will save us. Hadn't saved anybody. Hadn't saved anybody yet. And it won't. Because salvation comes through faith. It's a free gift that God gives us and that we can't earn it. And if we could earn it, it completely breaks the system. If somebody could earn this, somebody could be good enough, together enough, adhere to the rules enough, it completely blows the thing up, man. And the Lord simply won't allow it. He simply won't allow it. And if you're like me, you'll find that before 
You break his system, he will break your system. And by your system, I mean that system that I got to be good. I got to be perfect. I got to be right. Before you break down his system or you beat his, he will break yours. We're saved by grace and not by rule, rule keeping. I want to say real quickly, just a real quick aside, important side note about works and obedience. We'll talk about this more later, but I don't want us to misunderstand this thing. As I said earlier, there's an important role that works play in faith, particularly as it relates to our Christian faith. There's two real wide, you know, ends of the spectrum that we face here is that works alone will get you there and that faith alone will get you there. And it doesn't matter how I, how I live this thing out. It doesn't matter if there's any fruit of my faith. As long as I just hope and believe and I think good Christian thoughts, then I'll, the Lord will open the gates for me when I get there. Let me tell you something. Works are very important. They don't get the gates open. But they're the fruit that hangs on the tree of a person of faith. And if you think for one second that God is silly and that he can be duped by your words and by your piety that fools the natural eye, you think that God isn't looking for some measurable fruit of your faith in him. Listen, you got another thing coming. You got another thing coming. I love that Paul deals with circumcision here because... You know, the Lord came to, to, to Abraham and said, listen, I want you to get circumcised. I'm not talking about baby Abraham here, nine days old. We're talking about 99-year-old, you know, Abraham. I want you to just let your imaginations take that one and run with it. This is what I want you to do, man. This is the outward sign that this covenant, you, you, you believe this. I know you believe it. I don't have a doubt in my mind that you're going to run, run with this thing. But, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is part of the covenant here. What did Abraham say? He probably said, dang. Okay. Let's do it. Everybody in the house. All the future descendants. Why? Because that was the outworking of his belief. That God was who he said he was. God was worthy of his trust. And God was also worthy of being obeyed. Now, what does that mean for us? For a real person of faith. Listen, don't try to convince me that you're a person of faith. And you don't have a life that backs it up. Don't try to convince me. Don't try to convince me because the greatest evidence of your faith will be walking it out step by step in a way that honors God. I'm not talking about perfection. We all miss it. And if you think for a second that Abraham was this perfect individual, then you haven't read all of his story. You haven't read it. But what I'm talking about is God might ask you to do something that you don't want to do. In fact, it's likely that he will. I'm talking about, man, things, important things, like what you do with your time, what you do with your treasure, what you do with your skill set. Man, that's, this matters. What you do with that tells me what, what you believe. It's always interesting to, to observe Christians that don't give, that aren't generous, that withhold their resource from God and God's people and God's work. Now, you may be a work in progress, but let, let's understand something. If God doesn't have your money, he does not have you. Make no mistake. God doesn't have your time. He does not have you. If God doesn't have your sexuality and he can't tell you what to do with your body and what to stop doing with your body, you may be in process. But God does not have you. It seems like a conflict of interest for the preacher to get up and talk about money and giving. Listen, we're great stewards with the resources that you've given. It's with boldness that I talk about what you do with your resource, particularly as you allocate it toward the kingdom of God. But let me just talk to those of you today who struggle with being generous towards God and his stuff. It's the greatest indicator of where your heart is. You know the first thing I look at when somebody comes to me and say they want to be a leader? One of the first thing I look at, and I'm shameless about it. And I tell them that that's what I'm going to do. I go to my computer and I pull up their giving records. That seems kind of shady, doesn't it? But over the years, and in my own personal life, Where I allocate my resource is where my heart is. And if you want to check today, if you want to check today where your heart is, where your faithfulness is, where your allegiance is, just check what you do with your resource. Check what you do with your finances. Check what you do with your time. Just got to get the scraps. What's the outworking of your faith 
look like. That, I don't say that to condemn you or to make you feel bad. I say it by way of a, a, an accurate assessment. What's the outworking of your faith looks like? But let's not ignore these works here because they're the fruit that dangle on the trees. And we'll talk more about that as we work through this whole notion of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, going deeper and deeper and closer in our faith. But I just wanted to share that side note real quickly. My time is getting away here. Finally, Paul sets forth that Abraham was justified by resurrection power and not human effort. Paul was justified and we are justified, can be justified by resurrection power and not by human effort. And without reading all this, Paul just basically talks about how, so how, how, how Abraham's body was well past the point uh, where he could uh, uh, bear children. Both he and Sarah's body were aged, and when, when, when Abraham would receive the promise, he had probably passed the point, but at least, you know, probably well at the end of his point where he was, was fertile, and, and the same could be true of, of, of Sarah. And then some 15 years passed since when that promise was given that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, and when he actually, his wife actually conceived. 15 years. 15 years. God, what are you up to? Why did you do that? What's happening there? And Paul seems to make this correlation between um, uh, Abraham's dead body as it relates to reproduction and him, God's power to, to resurrect that thing and make that promise come true. Seems to draw a connection between that and the resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that's working within us to raise our dead souls. Back to life again with Jesus. Listen, something has to be dead before it can be resurrected. You know, I think this is why a great many people come to faith when they're at the very bottom of their life. Often that's the Lord, Lord, why don't you send us more you know, people who are just skipping in here to give their lives to the Lord? What it usually looks like is there's one leg dragging and, you know. Kids have run off and are acting a fool and the bank account's empty. There's no hope. There's no joy. they got a pocket full of pills thinking about ending it. It's typically how people come to faith. I said, well, why does it have to be that way? I said, I get no glory in resurrecting something that's alive. Sometimes I have to be dead first for life to be meaningful. And it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that reactivates Abraham's barren pipes and systems, right? And the same thing with with Sarah. It's the resurrection power that makes that promise come true. And how do we relate that to our salvation? It's the power of God. The scriptures talk about salvation being the power of the living God and not our human effort. We're going to hear that theme over and over and over as we talk about walk through Romans. It's the power of God that saves. No other name can save. No other power, especially your own, can bring life to your dead bones. Only the resurrection power of the living God can save. That's it. Period. Now, Abraham's justified. He's made right with God. He received salvation as a result of God's resurrection power and not by his own human effort. So how do we put this all together? What's the big picture? Worship team, you can come up. Paul makes it clear here that we are, like Abraham, justified by our faith and not by our works. Justified by our trust in God and not by anything that we can do. He goes on to say that we're justified by grace, God's unmerited favor, a free gift that we cannot earn. We're justified by grace and not by keeping the law or not by keeping the rules or not being just, just being a good person. He concludes by letting us know that we're justified by God's resurrection power and not any human effort. This is the great news of the kingdom. Great news of the kingdom of God. And some of you saying, man, I really had that wrong. (laughs) My understanding of what it took to be saved and what God was looking for from me to justify me, to bring me salvation, man, I really had that 
mixed up. And I'm glad you were here today. Because the question I ask you is, where, where are you today? Where are you, or are you on the spectrum of faith? Have you been thoroughly convinced despite circumstances? By, despite your particular situation? Despite your particular space and place in life, are you convinced? Are you convinced to the point where you would lean the full weight of your faith and full weight of your life and resource on Jesus? Is that where you are today? And some of you say, listen, man, I, 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 I've been traveling wrong. I've got to get this right. I've got to make this right. Lord, that's all you require? I don't need to be perfect. I don't have to have it all together. Listen, if that's true, if that's true, I want to sign up for that. If that's true, I want a piece of that. And some of you are here today, and after hearing this, you, 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 you doubt your years of salvation because you've had it wrong. And you say, now that I know that I don't have to earn this, now that I know that I don't have to do and jump through any hoops, now I know all I have to do is believe, and through that belief, lean the full weight of my life on Jesus. I want to do that. I want to do that again today just to make sure. Listen, I welcome that today. There's no time like the present to come into the family of Jesus Christ. We are justified, not by our works, but by faith, trusting, hoping, and believing that God is who he says he is, and he has a life prepared for us that he promises us in Scripture. If you want to partake in that today, we will make space for that after the service today. Let me pray so we can worship. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you so much, Lord, that we don't have to earn this, that you freely give it to us. And God, I pray above all, especially as we worship, that you would release the gift of faith in this place today. That you would release the gift of faith. That those of us who struggle, those of us who are skeptical, Lord, those of us who are doubtful today, Father, I pray that you would release the gift of faith by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, as we worship you and as we rehearse and as we say over and over the, the words that affirm your goodness, that affirm your salvation, affirm your righteousness, Lord, I pray that as we rehearse those words, Lord, that something would break within us, that change would be broken, that lives will be healed. God, we give ourselves to you in worship this morning. Would you have your way? God, we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do in this uh, time of worship, Lord. We thank you for your presence here. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.